I find it so interesting that sometimes we can take what seems to be a really small action, but it ends up being something really big. Back in 1998, I was living in Maine with my wife and our two young kids. I was working at a regular office job. Then one day, I needed to have some printing done. This was before the days of high-quality inkjet printers, so it was common to go to a local print shop and get whatever you needed to have printed. While I was paying for my stuff, I noticed a small piece of paper on the counter. Someone had left a little note that said, I need tutoring in Microsoft Word. If you can help, call this number. And I thought, yeah, I know Word. Maybe I can help. So I took the note and called her later. I ended up going over there and we spent a couple of hours going through the various functions of Word and how to do things. And she paid me. So I thought, maybe this is a sort of side hustle that I could do in my spare time to make some extra money. That's how my computer business, which is called The Computer Tutor, got started. And it turned into a full-time job doing computer instruction and computer repair for over 20 years. And that whole thing started just by me happening to notice that little piece of paper on the counter in that print shop. Today you'll hear my conversation with Jessica. Back in 2011, she was on the phone with one of her co-workers. During that conversation, she made a decision that she wasn't all that comfortable with. And at the time, it didn't seem like a big deal. But that seemingly small decision ended up changing the whole direction of her life. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds. Experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. 
At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. You're an American. What were you doing in Somalia at that time? I know it's not exactly everybody's primary work destination. Um, And it wasn't exactly a place that I had mapped out on my globe as to where I thought I was going to end up working. But um, I'm actually a teacher uh, by profession. And uh, when I was finishing up my teaching degree at a university outside of Philadelphia, I became really interested in teaching abroad and finishing up my degree that way with my student teaching practicum. And I found an international school in Nairobi, Kenya that would take me. And so I was the actually the first teacher being trained at my uni to study abroad and to do their uh, student teaching abroad. And um, I just loved it. It was the most phenomenal experience um, working with kids from all different backgrounds and countries. And so when I finished up my student teaching, they offered me a full-time position and I took it um, because I wanted to stay in Africa for sure. And then, um, you know, I was mid twenties, kind of a late bloomer. You know, I've always liked to explore lots of different options and my career path has definitely reflected that. And so took my teaching position in Nairobi and a couple of months after I started, I met um, this cute Swede in a nightclub one night and he was there working for a, a Swedish NGO and we hit it off. And about a year and a half later, we ended up married and he at that point had been stationed with a, a different NGO up in Hargeisa Somali land, which if people are somewhat familiar with the lay of the land of Somalia is kind of shaped like a seven. So we were up at the top left corner of that seven. But he traveled pretty much all over the place. We, you know, just decided a long distance relationship wasn't what we wanted when we were starting out our marriage. And so I quit my teaching job and moved up to Hargisa to be with him. Um, Because I'm a teacher, I can find work anywhere, right? So I ended up, you know, just tutoring for a while, teaching English to refugees that were living on our compound. And then I ended up starting to do consultancy work for the UN. And then that rolled into a full-time position for the Danish demining group, which was the mine action unit of the Danish Refugee Council. Um, and my job was to manage all of their education programs. And the education component of the mine action unit was mine risk education, conflict management education, and firearm safety education. In countries like Somalia and South Sudan and even Uganda, Uganda and Kenya, you know, they're pretty new in terms of being post, you know, civil war. And they still have leftover landmines, leftover explosives laying around, especially in more rural areas. And so my job was to train our staff so that they could take the messaging out into the villages, especially the kids. Like if you see something shiny laying on the ground, don't pick it up because it could explode and it could kill you or it could blind you because that would happen all the time. I know it's not everybody's like dream job, but for me, it was like, 
I was living my best life. You know, I, I had really meaningful, purposeful work. It was exciting. Um, I got to meet so many different people and go to so many cool places. And yeah, I was, I was living the, my dream for sure. It sounds just awesome and so rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just thinking the irony of this, though, you're doing humanitarian work there with this, you know, demining education, literally saving lives of the people that live there. And then this thing happens to you yeah. by the people that live there. Yeah. Okay. Well, you were on a brief trip to the NGO's field office. Just tell us what, what happened that day. How did this take place? Yeah. So part I managed um, a whole portfolio of East Africa, South Sudan, Uganda, Kenya, and then all of Somalia. So we had several field offices and I was called upon to do a staff training down in the Southern part near Galkayo, uh, which is like a little bit North of Mogadishu, which is probably what most people are familiar with when it comes to Somalia. I'd actually canceled the staff training twice before because I didn't feel good about the security situation if if you if you will and um, my counterpart a Danish gentleman named Paul who was the program director for that particular field office the on the third like attempt at planning this trip I called and I said you know I don't feel good about coming down I don't feel like it's safe and he you know, minimized it and was like, I'm here. It's fine. And I just kept, you know, hemming and hawing because I had a feeling in my gut that something wasn't right. And he essentially said, you know, like, if you don't get down here and do your job, then I'm going to report you to our supervisor. You know, like I said before, I, I loved my job and it was, it was competitive. Like, I think sometimes it's hard for people to understand that like these kind of jobs are competitive, but they really are to find a job like this where you're actually getting paid and not just volunteering your time. And um, they're hard to come by. And so I was, you know, I felt pressure and I felt scared that I might lose my job. So I thought I'm a school teacher from Ohio. Like, you know, nothing bad happens to school teachers from Ohio. I'll be fine. You know, what's the worst that can happen? So I get on a UN plane and fly down there and it's a three-day training. First two days go great, off without a hitch. Third day, we actually have to leave. It's the town of Galkayo. There's a lot of clan conflict or at the time there was. And so the town is divided by North and South. And so in order to move across this you know, this dividing line between the North and South, you have to like get in a whole new convoy of vehicles and have a whole new set of staff. And so everything had been planned. Everything had been set up. It was quite a production to get to the South part of the city to conduct the training, but we did, did the training. Everything went great until about three o'clock in the afternoon when we got back into our convoy to go to, to be taken to the northern part of the city where we were going to sleep in the guest house and then head back up to the northern. I was going to go back up to Hargeza. We were in a convoy of three vehicles, and I had actually the local Somali security advisor sitting next to me in the vehicle. And, he, you know, we pull out of the compound gates and we're heading north through Galkayo City. And then about 10 minutes into the ride, somebody cuts us off in another vehicle and splashes mud up all over our windows and our windshield. And, you know, I'm doing exactly what they tell you not to do, like not paying attention. I'm like texting my husband and wondering like what I'm going to have for dinner that night. And then all of a sudden I hear 
the crack of the butt of AK-47 on the car hood and everybody like it just feels like we're surrounded by screaming angry Somali men and then the door is pulled open and the security advisor sitting next to me is pulled out and a guy with an AK gets in points it at my head and starts screaming at the driver to drive Paul is in the front seat the front passenger seat and we have a a local Somali driver and then a bunch of people get into the back of the vehicle and they just take off driving through town and out of town. And we drive for hours out into the desert and we stop and change vehicles. We drive some more. We stop, we change personnel. At one point I realized there's a child in the car and he is sitting right behind me. He's about nine years old. He's wearing like belts of ammo. He's got an AK. I think he was there to like learn the family trade And, you know, it takes me a couple of hours to realize that we're not just being carjacked. You know, I'm hoping, I'm praying that we're just going to be carjacked. They're going to take our stuff, kick us out of the car, and we can walk back to town, even if it takes all night. Right. But if that was the case, they would have kicked you out of the car from the start, right? Well, no. I mean, they can do the, you know, there was a rash. I was used to hearing about people getting carjacked in Nairobi and they would, you know, drive you around all night long, you know, and then kick you out, like take your stuff, go to the ATM, empty out your bank account, and then kick you out, leave you somewhere in a slum or something. And so I, you know, I knew what was up, but it wasn't until like several hours into the whole ordeal. And Paul turns around and looks at me. I think he asked me if I'm okay. And I just am like, what, like what's, what's happening? And he's, I just remember he looked like so sorry for me. Like the look on his face was just pity. And he said, cause he realized I hadn't understood what was happening yet. And he was like, we're being kidnapped. And I'm, I'm thinking like, I have no frame of reference for this. Like I have no frame of reference for how bad this is, whatever it is, however, this thing turns out, even if they only like, you know, kidnap us for two days or like my life has changed forever. It's nothing from this point on is ever going to be the same again. And he's got to be feeling a little bit guilty because he talked you into coming. (laughs) Yeah. Don't worry about the safety, Jess. Yeah. Yeah. We won't know about that until like day 27 when he finally admits that there was a direct kidnapping threat on the organization, but didn't want to tell me because they didn't consider it a viable threat. Yeah, that's taken a lot for me to get over. <laughs> I don't think I'm there yet. <laughs> so, but at this point, you're just now coming to the realization of how bad it really is. Yeah. And then I'm thinking, you know, I'm like looking around. I'm the only woman, an American. We're driving south, like Al Shabaab territory. Things are not looking good. And then somewhere in the middle of the night, they stop and they force us out of the vehicle and um, start shouting at us to walk. And I know that whatever is waiting out from out there for me is is not going to be good. And so I s- refuse and say no. And they we go. We have this exchange. One of the kidnappers and I am, and I just keep saying no. And finally Paul comes over and he says, you know, Jessica, we, we have to walk. Like we have to do what they're telling us to do. 
or they're going to shoot us right here. And so I still think of it as like a march to my own execution is what I believed was happening. You know, I'm saying goodbye to my husband. I'm saying goodbye to my dad and my sister and my brother. I'm like calling out to my mother who'd passed away the year before. I'm asking her for strength. Strength. It was very important to me in what I believed to be my final moments that I would be dignified somehow that I wouldn't, you know, I don't know. It's weird what goes through your mind. Like I wouldn't disgrace myself or, you know, and because I figured I was going to be assaulted and then executed because stories coming out of situations like this were quite violent. We walk for 20, 30 minutes and then we're stopped and forced down onto our knees and I'm waiting for my head to be chopped from my body. And um, instead I hear one of them say sleep. And I'm thinking like, I, I didn't hear that right. And, and they say sleep again. And they just like want to silly down in the dirt in the middle of the desert and go to sleep. And it's so interesting how your body and mind work together to protect you when you're in such a state of shock, I think, and like fight or flight. And I did, I just like passed out and I fell asleep for a couple of hours. And then I woke up the next morning laying in the dirt. And that was like, I call it like this descent into just hell. To me, it's amazing that, I mean, I've been in situations where I've got adrenaline going and the last thing I'd be able to do is just fall asleep. Was it because you're you were so uh, exhausted mentally from walking and thinking? You're I think die so. I think everything just knew it needed to shut down, like it needed to protect me, and it just shut down. And I don't think Paul slept. He was awake pretty much the whole night trying to figure out like what is going on here, like who has us. You know, there were phone calls. There were all these people milling around. There was all this commotion, and I just. Like, I think the stress of the whole situation just caused me to pass out, essentially. So, and I don't know for how long, but. You must have felt some, like a big sense of relief that they didn't just shoot you. Yeah, but then I woke up and it was like, okay, what's going to happen now? You know, like every single minute something is changing and, or something could change. So you just never knew what to expect. So what, the next morning you wake up and, and what happened? Oh, then we wait. We asked to talk to our organization. We asked to call our families. No one can understand us. There's no one there. There are all these men, armed men, explosives laying around, grenades, you know, rocket launchers, like heavy artillery, but no one can speak any English. So we have to wait until the translator, as they call him, comes in. And we thought that they meant like the negotiator. And about a week into the thing, some guy comes in who speaks a little bit of English and they drive us out into the desert, put us on the phone in the middle of the night. We end up, you know, we're supposed to call our families, but the phone numbers have been shut down. And I can't understand like why I can't get a hold of my husband or my dad. And then we realize that they've, there must be like, like FBI, like police involved. And that this must be like a, a tactic or a procedure in order to keep everybody safe and how this is going to go. And so they have a phone number. 
somehow that goes to our organization and it appears that they've set up like some sort of spokesperson to talk on behalf of the family and the organization. And he is a, a Somali who speaks English. His name is Mohammed. And I just can't like make my brain to work because I'm like, who is this person? Like, why why can't I get a hold of anybody in my family? Like, what is happening here? It was it's like constantly like mentally jarring. You know what I mean? Like you think that maybe you're gonna, you know what to expect, and then you're like put on the phone and talk to some person that you don't know. You're trying to answer security questions about yourself and you're trying to remember like what your dog's, your first dog's name was, you know, like stuff like that. And, um, and you don't know, like if you answer wrong, like maybe this is like that, maybe you're going to get shot in the head. Like, I mean, the stakes are so high and the unknowns are so unknown. So it's just one big, huge, it's like one big, huge mind fuck the entire time. It's, it's nuts. Was that phone call what they would call a proof of life call? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first, I would say like the first mm, two weeks into the ordeal. So probably like the end of October, beginning of November of 2011, that would have been our first proof of life call. And we would have had a series of six throughout the, the 93 day captivity. Obviously, as you mentioned, you're the only female. You're surrounded by all of these men who didn't speak hardly any English. One thing I wanted to ask is they, you, in, in your book, you talked about they were always high or on some kind of a buzz from this stuff called cot, K-H-A-T. What is that and why is it so pervasive over there? Well, it's just this green plant, but it's a narcotic so it's addictive. And what they do is, I mean, it's just, it is, it's very pervasive in the culture. And it's, I think it's pretty popular in Northern Kenya and Ethiopia as well. They call it Mira in uh, Kenya, but it's like you chew it and it forms a paste essentially. And it gets really dry. It's like very bitter and very dry. Um, and then it makes you feel high. And then it, to counteract the bitterness and the pasty, like the dryness, they drink the super sweet tea. So um, like a black tea with like some cardamom, but they put like, say like a normal tea kettle size, right? Um, maybe you would have six cups of like white sugar. Um, so it's like a syrup almost. And so then, you know, this is a country where the average at one, at that time, the average life expectancy was 46, you know, people are living on less than a dollar a day. So like their teeth are rotting out, like people are dying from infections in their brain that started in their teeth because of the tea that they're drinking and the, in the cot and they start around noon and it also makes you're not hungry, you know? So you chew this and it's very social. They sit around in cot circles and they chew, they talk about God only knows what politics, whatever they chew, chew, chew into the night. And then when they're coming down off of it, then they fall asleep and, and then they'll sleep till noon or one. And then, um, you know, that was the one thing that you could predict and count on throughout the course of the whole thing was that the cot runner would come and find us wherever we were. So, you know, we lived outside during the entire ordeal. We were not like put in a, a house or any kind of shelter. We weren't like thrown into a hole. Like we just lived out in the desert. We sat under trees during the day and we slept out in the open at night. 
as they did, but they would like come in cycles, right? So they had shifts. So they would be there for three or four days and then get to go home and sleep and get a shower or do whatever it is they needed to do and eat. And then they would come back out, but we never, we never got a break. You're wearing the same clothes every day or did, or did you, did you have a they, Yeah, they brought, they ended up bringing me some like Somali dresses. And, um, but I remember like, <laughs> like early into it, like a week into it, I was trying to like wash my underwear out and I put them up on a a bush like to dry. And then somebody took them. I couldn't make them understand that I needed like underwear, you know? So, um, that was a bit of a problem. (laughs) Like, you know, it's just like trying to under, like make a bunch of men who are armed and want to hurt you. Um, as the only woman, Western woman, especially under like make them understand that you have certain hygienic needs was a real challenge. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with cook unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut. With Seeds DS01 Daily Symbiotic, go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what 
to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. It was barbaric. You know, I felt like an animal. Like I would try to find the furthest nearest bush I'm trying to to shower or like not shower, but like take a spit bath, you know, like I, every couple of days they'd give me some water, like in a diesel can that they use interchangeably for diesel and then for water, for cooking and washing. And so, you know, like trying to uh, stand out in the middle of the desert behind a thorn bush surrounded by men to try to get yourself to feel remotely clean is quite a challenge. And that's just the physical aspect of it. I mean, you've got to, you feel helpless and not knowing what's going to happen or how long you're going to be there. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think at one point, Amnesty International defined torture as being detained without knowing the end. And I mean, like, it really is torture, like mental torture to not know when this thing is going to end. Like, you know, if you think about anything else, really, like in the proper, first world. You know, I had cancer a couple of years ago. And so I had to go through radiation and cancer treatment. And I know that that's finite. You know, I know that those treatments are going to end so I can tick those off on the calendar. And and while it's deeply distressing and anxiety producing, at least I know there's an end. But when you're like in a situation where you're being detained or held hostage, you have no idea how long this thing is going to take. And the reality is that they often take not weeks, not months, but years to resolve because, you know, in my situation, thank God it wasn't ideological. They just wanted money, but they started the ransom demand at $45 million. Like, what is that? And this was happening at a time, you know, like Captain Phillips, um, you know, lots of like these big container ships were being taken by pirates off the coast of um, like in the Indian Ocean and $45 million. Okay, sure, because you got millions and millions of dollars of product uh, on your ship, but we're just two aid workers, you know, like no matter how hard we tried, we could not make them understand like we're two people. Like no one, no one's going to pay for you. No one's even going to pay a million dollars for us. We're going to be out here for a really long time. You're the the wealthy Americans. Americans are all full of money. Well, and that was the counter like comment, right? They would say, and this is very, I think it's very indicative of a, a culture like Somalia because it's still largely nomadic. And so, and also clan uh, based. So, you know, like if somebody in their clan was in trouble, then all they would do is take a collection of money or camels or goats, and then they would all contribute because they were all family. So, you know, they would say to me, all you need is 40, how many, like how many Americans are there? Like 350 million, like all you need is 45 million to contribute $1 and then you can go free. Yeah, that's never going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> well, th- these guys are n- are not hired for their IQ. Mm-mm. 
No. Well, and the guys on the ground, they're just there to guard. Like they are not the masterminds behind this. They're not the financiers. Like they're just there to make sure we don't run off. So they're even stupider than the people. Yeah. But that's the scary part, right? Like I think it's scary to be held hostage by stupid people than it is by people who actually have their wits about them because who knows what's going to happen. I mean, these particular ones, I, I, in general, and I'm always very like clear about the fact that I loved working in Somalia and I felt very privileged and no one ever asked me to come and work there. It was my choice. So I don't think that it's reflective of the culture or the people or the country. You know, you've got bad, stupid people everywhere. That's true. You, in your book, you talked about how your creative imagination helped you get through each day. How did that work? Well, fortunately, I think I have a lot of good characteristics for being a hostage. Um, I'm like a serial daydreamer. And, you know, the thing that used to get me in trouble during school, it turned out to be my saving grace because I can spend a lot of time inside my own head. And that ended up being my lifeline to the point where I started getting up. It was like a, a thing to look forward to. It was interesting because I I had mentioned I'd lost my mom uh, the year before all of this happened. And we lost her very suddenly, very tragically. And I was still very much in the throes of grieving uh, when all of this happened. And I had been thinking about taking a break from work and, I don't know, going and sitting in an ashram in India or something for a couple of months and just crying it all out or finding myself. I don't know. I was feeling like I was at some sort of crossroads and I woke up one day and pulled my mat back under the thorn bush or the tree or whatever I was sitting under. And it dawned on me that I had three things I was probably never going to have again in my life. If I lived and made it out of this thing alive, I had oodles of time. I had nothing to do. And, um, I had a lot of solitude because, you know, when they weren't harassing me, they were leaving me alone. And that could be like days and weeks on end where no one would even talk to me. So I was, I call it like solitary confinement, but when I was in the right frame of mind, it could be really peaceful. And so I thought, well, you know what, maybe this is my chance. Like, this is not exactly what I was thinking when I was thinking about going to go and have that like meditative find myself experience, but I am not one to waste an opportunity. So I decided that I was going to make a work plan for myself and get really organized about how I was going to spend my day dreams. And I decided to take my life in increments in, in my memories and like uh, start at the very first memory that I could remember when I was like, say four years old and I was going to dissect the whole thing. I was going to like think about everything in the most, uh, the smallest detail that I possibly could. And then I was going to analyze it. And like, why did that person say that? And why did my mom do that? And why did my, you know, like, why did that make me feel that way? And, you know, at the time I was 32. So I'd had, you know, I'd had, I'd been married before and divorced. And, you know, why did I decide to to do like, I had so many unanalyzed, unrealized things take place in my life up until then. And so um, it was actually a really profoundly beautiful time to be able to 
look at my life and realize I'd actually had this amazing life up until then. And um, I also was able to forgive some people and, um, you know, metaphorically ask for forgiveness. And it was a deep, deep time of connection with myself. And it was also a, I would call it my most important come to Jesus moment around self-abandonment and realizing that the reason I had gotten into this whole mess was because I didn't stand up for myself. I didn't want to go on that trip, but I let myself be pressured. Then I was able to move forward in terms of what I was going to do next and how I was going to operate in my life if I got a chance to continue living it. And so that that part was really, actually really interesting. And I'll never have the opportunity to do that again. Hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> what was Eric, your husband, doing this whole time? I mean, he had to just be frantic. I think largely he felt responsible too. You know, like I'm the, like he felt like he was the reason that I'd gone to Somalia. And of course, you know, he had to call my dad and tell him that I'd been kidnapped. And I think that was the hardest phone call he's ever had to make in his life. Right. But my dad is, he's a wonderful person. And, um, I think he made sure Eric knew right off the bat, like Jess makes her own decisions and you can't ever persuade her to do anything she doesn't want to do. So like, we're not sitting here blaming you for this happening. Like this is just, this is just something that happened. And I think he put all of his energy into banging down doors and banging his fists on tables and, you know, meeting with the embassies and the FBI and getting the organization to do what they needed to do and running middleman and communicating with my family and running interference. And just fortunately, he's very good with people like that's his superpower. And so I think that in the end, and I knew that I can feel that while I was sitting there. And I remember saying that to Paul, like Eric's a bulldog, you know, if anybody is demanding answers and action on our behalf. It's him. But being that kind of aggressive person wanting to just get it resolved now, it had to be a little bit frustrating since really it was being handled by the FBI and, and, and other people that he couldn't really do much on his own. No, but you know, they were really good. I mean, Eric has at the, at that point had been working in Somalia or with Somalia for like 15 or 16 years. So he had a lot of contextual knowledge that even, you know, the people working in the organization or the, the uh, K&R negotiators, like he had a lot of contextual experience and knowledge that I think he was able to help a lot. A good resource. So, yeah. Yes, absolutely. How long were you held before you were able to actually speak with Eric? And can you talk about that phone call? Mm, yeah. So I didn't know I had lost track of time, but it was actually Thanksgiving day. So I was taken October 25th, 2011. So, and I'm not sure what day Thanksgiving was that year, but you know, roughly a month after. And we did get to speak for about two minutes the guys on the ground that were holding us were giving us a really hard time because they didn't trust the family communicator, Muhammad, and they wanted to talk to our family. And um, so 
through the course of, I guess, some phone calls, I don't know how it happened. They arranged to put Eric on the phone with me. And I, it was not, not emotional. It was very, I was very goal oriented because I needed, like, I need to get out of here. So I need you to do exactly what I'm telling you to do. And you need to tell Abdi that you, you know, Mohammed speaks on behalf for our our family or whatever it was that he wanted. And, you know, I think I remember barking out, I love you and I'm going to be okay. But like, we got to get this thing resolved. Like I was very like, we got to get through this thing. So it wasn't, it wasn't an extremely, I think, touching. No, but I'm I'm just thinking from his standpoint, that had to be encouraging knowing that, yep, that's Mm -hmm. Jess. She's still got her spunkiness. And Mm -hmm. so she must be at least partially okay. Well, and I think that was important for me to communicate, you know, because it's so hard. It's hard to explain that, you know, when you're okay, but they'll, they don't know, like on that Tuesday that you wake up, that you're mentally, you're feeling mentally strong and that your body is okay. Like for all they know, you could have like had your arm chopped off and it's going to be sent to them in the mail. So I just needed him to know and to take the message back to my family that all of your work is in efforts are worth it. Like I'm, I'm going to come out of this thing and I'm going to be okay. How was your, your health was degrading over time. Mm-hmm. Was that, that was a big concern, obviously. It was. Um, well, and it, I mean, essentially it's what actually ended up saving my life. So, you know, because of the lack of sanitary conditions and I have a thyroid condition and so I didn't have the proper medication. And then I ended up getting a urinary tract infection because, you know, like out there in the desert and um, it, got so bad that it moved into a kidney infection. You get a kidney infection, like you need to be hospitalized. You need IVs, you need antibiotics fast. And they wouldn't bring me a doctor. They wouldn't bring me medicine, you know, because they only need you alive enough so that they can cash you in. They don't need you comfortable. They don't need you happy. So, you know, I'm raging fevers, hallucinating from fevers and so much pain. I can't walk. I'm like crawling to a nearby bush to be sick. They just kind of look at you like, you're kind of a source of entertainment, like you're a zoo animal or something. And it, my last proof of life call was December 16, no, sorry, January 16, 2012. And we had another like family communicator be put on the phone. And now it was a woman named Alex. And I told her, you know, you got to do something. Like, you guys have to do something like pay the ransom. Like, I don't know what you need to do, but you need to do something because I'm not going to make it out of here alive. Like I bet I've got two, three weeks max. I am seriously ill and I'm sleeping in the dirt like 20 hours a day because I'm passing out from pain. Like you got to do something, but you know, we all knew there was like nothing she could do. And what you didn't know that whole time is that the U.S. military was monitoring you and knew mm-hmm. about your health problems. Yeah, I mean, I had—I mean, obviously, had no way of knowing. You know, I—I I probably had some sort of conceptualization that, like, if something that like this were to happen to a military personnel, then they would be able to locate them and whatnot. But like, we're just two aid workers. No one knows we're here. No one cares. Like, our only hope of getting out of here is 
paying the ransom and you know, every once in a while we would hear something like a motor or something like something like up in the sky, like it wasn't a plane. Um, we thought maybe for a while it was a ship, like maybe a generator from a ship, but we couldn't, we didn't feel like we were close to the sea either. You know, the whole time we don't know where we are. We're just out in the middle of nowhere. We, there was no ambient light at night. So we knew we weren't within 20 miles of a town. So we couldn't figure out what that sound was. And now I know that it was surveillance drones trying to get a location on us. But I don't think you would even dare to hope it was something like that. Right. That would be too good to be true. And if it, if it yeah. were, you'd have to think, well, okay, if they know where I am, why haven't they come to get me already? Yeah. But they yeah. knew that your health was degrading. And like you said, your bad health was what actually saved you because that's what mm-hmm. made the decision to, you know, we got to, we got to do go now. Yeah. So what set the wheels in motion was that last proof of life call on January 16th. And then they took the information to Eric and he then took all my symptoms and what I had said to my doctor in Nairobi. And the doctor was like, Eric, you got to get her out. Like if you don't get her out in the next couple of weeks, she's dead. And so he took that information to Matt Espenshade who um, was the lead agent on the case based in Nairobi for the FBI, who is just the most amazing human being in the whole world. He, Eric recounts it as like, he said there was another agent in there and he told them, you know, what I said and they both just looked at each other and then they just walked out of the room and he knew that something was up, like something was going to happen. He didn't know what was going to happen, but he knew something was up and he didn't know when it was going to happen. And of course you didn't know when it was going to happen either. No, no, I didn't know that it was even a possibility even when it was happening. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, let's hear about that night. There's, this was a, uh, it was late at night and there was no moon. I think that was deliberate. The reason they chose Mm -hmm. that night. So it was completely dark. Yeah. So it was January uh, 24th, 2012. And um, I was starting to feel pretty low, pretty mentally like low. And I remember laying down on my mat and there were two stars that come out at the same time every night. And I named one for my mom and I would talk to her like every night before I would fall asleep. And this, this particular evening, I was like, you got to do something like you got to go and tell God that he needs to do something or else I'm going to die. Like I, and you know, I miss you, but I'm not ready for like to meet you. Like I'd like to stay here on this earth and finish out this life. I fell asleep and I woke up a couple hours later, just feeling super, super sick. And I try to pull myself up off my mat and I see the word toilet, which is how we asked for permission to leave the map. There were nine uh, guards on the ground that night and always every single night, every like all the 92 nights before, at least one of the guards was awake to, you know, make sure we didn't run off or make sure our camp wasn't attacked or whatever. This night, everybody was completely passed out. All nine of them were like out out, out, out. And no one would wake up. I kept saying the word toilet. No one would get up. So my need became too great. So I like took a small pen light and I started flashing it because I didn't want them to think I had escaped if somebody did wake up because I was making a lot of noise. I did what I needed to do, come back to my mat, like roll myself up in my blanket and try to go back to sleep. But um, I hear something in the grass, like, you know, we're sleeping in kind of like a clearing in the middle of this 
desert field and there's like tall grasses around us and stuff. I think it's animals or something coming out and I'm just like, I'm so weary. I'm so tired. I'm so sick. And I, I'm like thinking, great. Now I have to contend with some sort of weird wild animal coming at me out here, you know, no protection. I get up a couple of times to kind of like see what's happening, like what's around, but I can't see anything. And I find, you know, sleep is my only escape. So roll back up in my blanket and about 30 seconds goes by and the, the pirate sleeping on my left, he jumps up and I can't see anything because the stars, like everything is clouded over. There's no moon, there's no stars anymore, but I can kind of make out his face and I can sense that he is terrified. Then he's whisper screaming for all of the other guards to get up. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. And then the night just erupts into automatic gunfire. I mean, these guys are, they're shouting, they're screaming, they're being hit by bullets, they're hitting the grounds. Like people are dying all around me and I'm still on the ground. I'm just laying there and I'm just like, Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. And I'm thinking like, I am, I'm seriously not going to make it out of this thing alive. Like, I'm really not going to make it out of this thing alive. God damn it. I'm not going to make it out of this thing alive. You know, I think that maybe we're being taken by another group. Maybe it's Al-Shabaab. It never once crosses my mind that it could be help. Not once. Um, until I feel somebody grab my legs and my shoulders, like hands on me. And they're trying to pull a blanket away from my face. I'm like trying to hold it up. I'm trying to protect myself. And then I hear this young American man's voice and he says my name, like he knows my name. He says, Jessica, it's okay. We're the American military. You're safe. We're going to take you home now. And um, the blanket comes down from my face and and I kind of like struggle to, to sit up and then I can make out, I can't see clearly, but I can make out some like dark, figures like masks and like big people men whatever and um i just am completely overtaken by shock and all of this all i can say over and over again is you're american you're american <laughs> wait 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 you, you're american like i just cannot make my mind compute like what is happening he says he kind of gets down on my level and he says, we've been watching you for a really long time and we know how sick you've been. And he has medicine and he has a bottle of water, like clean water. And, um, you know, one of them says, okay, we need to move. Like we, we need to get your shoes because you need to walk. Do you know where your shoes are? I'm like, I have no idea where my shoes are. <laughs> He's like, it explains to me, okay, I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to put you over my shoulder. We're going to like, just take off running. So just hold on. And he scoops me up, throws me over his shoulder and just takes off running. And I'm like, I just remember thinking as I'm like looking at the ground, 
oh my God, like I am a school teacher from Ohio. How is this my life right now? Like what is happening? He carries me to some space that's deemed, I guess, safe and puts me down on the ground. And my first question is, where's Paul? Did he make it out okay? Is he still alive? He's sitting there. He leans over to me and he's like, Jessica, do you know who these guys are? Paul, I really don't care. Like, <laughs> like whoever it is, it doesn't matter. They have gotten it. They have like gotten us out of here. We are gonna, we are gonna survive this thing. And he's like, this is SEAL Team Six. Like, these are the guys that got Osama bin Laden. I'm like, wow. Like, still just cannot wrap my brain around the um the complexity of the entire thing. And I mean, I'm still like 10 years out, I'm still unraveling this whole thing. Like every month I hear something from somebody like over LinkedIn or somebody reaches out to me and they're like, I was a part of like, I flew the helicopter, I flew the plane or the guys jumped out or I was the medic or, you know, and it's just like mind boggling how many hundreds, if not thousands of people were involved in this rescue mission. It's crazy. So your your name is probably on a lot of these military people's resume. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm like, I'm like, my story is, you know, something that they use in trainings and stuff. You know, because everything, all the stars were so aligned. Like it was a perfect operation. Because none I and I think there were like twenty to thirty um seals um on the ground. I don't even know for sure. Every single one of them came home. There were no casualties of um, no American lives lost. You know, the hostages both returned. Like uh, these guys are the best of the best of the best, but still like you cannot predict all of the variables, crazy things that can, yeah, all the variables, all the things that can go wrong. And it was a textbook rescue. Everything went out off without a hitch. So you were carried away from the, you were carried away to safety, and I know I can understand and imagine you just couldn't quite process that this was actually happening after more than three months. So I hadn't given up hope, but I also realized like I couldn't do much about like my body. Like if my body was going to give up, there was only so much I could do. The only thing I had control of was my mind. I liked when you talked about when you were in the helicopter, that first snack bar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, it's so funny. Like they were celebrating, you know, like, are you hungry? Like, do you want a snicker bar? Do you want chips and salsa? And yeah, I can't remember if I was eating or not. I just remember I, I couldn't make any decisions, you know, like I couldn't that, and that would, would be something that would follow me for a very long time. But sitting there on the plane when the lights finally came up and, and I could, sort of make sense of what was happening. And then I'm, I'm sitting there, but I no words are coming out and I might be eating something or not. I can't even remember. And, and one of them comes over to me and he kind of gets down on his knee and hands me a folded, folded piece of fabric. And I look down and um, I see it's an American flag and he says, welcome home, Jessica. And then I'm just like, just this tidal wave of emotion, you know, just like a puddle of tears because it's starting to sink in what has really taken place. And that I am actually alive and I'm going to go home. Incredible. 
I was uh, really intrigued by the psychological aspects of your reuniting with Eric and that they limited that first face-to-face contact deliberately. What, what's mm-hmm. behind that? So I elected to um, participate in the Department of Defense's hostage reintegration program. So it was completely voluntary, but I figured they've done this before and they got me out. They know what they're doing. So, and I had already committed to whatever it took in terms of restoring my mental health if and when I got out. So I, you know, said, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And so the, you know, like the first phone call with Eric was five minutes. That's all I got. And I realized two minutes in, oh, five minutes is plenty because two minutes almost feels like too much, you know, like there, he had so much to say and I just couldn't take it. The first meeting that we had was on an, a military base in Italy where they had flown me and flown him in to reunite us. And it was one hour, you know, in the hospital, I was, you know, hospitalized and then the next day we were able to have lunch together. And then the next day we had dinner and, you know, it was very like, it was chaperoned to make sure that I was okay and wasn't going to like go completely berserk and run out of the building or, you know, it was all for my support and my mental um, health and protection and for his too. But, um, I just actually in January was at the Joint uh, Special Operations Command talking to a team of psychologists about this experience because they wanted to to know like what worked and what didn't work. And I would say that it worked very well. You know, you don't think it sounds so great. You think you're just going to want to be with your loved ones 24-7. But oh my goodness, after spending so much time alone in solitary confinement, it's just too much. It's too intense. And you get so tired so quickly. And so I... I definitely recommend it to anybody coming back from captivity. It was, it was, I I felt very lucky to be able to participate in it. The night that you were rescued, your father got a phone call. Oh yeah. Oh, that's such a story. It was the night of the seat of the union address. Uh, President Obama had given the state of the union and my sister and my dad were actually in DC, like downtown DC for meetings with the FBI and they had not gone well. And they were not feeling good. They were not feeling hopeful. There were people in the FBI that knew what was going to happen, what was taking place, but they weren't allowed to say anything to my family. So my family was in the dark that a rescue operation was going to be taking place. So for all they knew, I was going to be sitting there for the foreseeable future. My dad lives in central Virginia and he he's not a city person. So he just wanted to get out of town. And um, the victim assistance uh, support team convinced my dad and sister to stay in a hotel downtown because, you know, traffic is bad and state of the union and blah, blah. And um, so my dad and my sister sitting in a hotel room downtown DC and he gets a phone call on his cell phone and wanting to confirm that it is indeed his phone number and he needs to keep the line clear for the next hour. He's a phenomenal storyteller. So I love hearing him tell any story, but this one is a particularly good one. And uh, my sister was like, what, like, what do you think that was about? And my dad said, well, it's either really good or it's really bad. And so they just sat there in this hotel room in silence 
And then he kept getting these phone calls saying, is this a good, like, is this a good number? Keep this line clear. So like four or five times. And then finally he gets a, a call and they say, the next voice you're going to hear will be the president of the United States. And so then President Obama gets on the phone and is like, John, this is Barack Obama. I just wanted to um, call you and let you know that your daughter has been rescued um, by, I don't know what he said, if he's uh, like SEAL teams, but she's safe and, and she's alive and she's coming home. And as a, a father to two daughters, I just wanted to call you and to tell you father to father, you know, I can't imagine what you've been through over these last few months, but this nightmare is is over. And my dad is just like, ah, uh, you know, my sister's over here. She can hear what's going on. And she's like freaking out. My dad's like trying to tell her like, Shh, be quiet. You know, I'm talking to the president of the United States. <laughs> you know, So I think that that was a pretty surreal moment for, for all of them. You know, and then I hear about it. I'm in Djibouti in the hospital and somebody tells me that president Obama called my dad to let him know. And I'm like, ugh that can't be right. <laughs> like, uh, you don't know what you're talking about, you know, cause I had, I didn't understand the implications and the magnitude that I, I had no idea that it hit, had hit the media and it had become such a big thing. That is just incredible. Mm -hmm. Your recovery since then, w were you diagnosed with anything in, anything in particular like PTSD or yeah. how did you get through that? Yeah. I mean, I say I'm still getting through it. I think that there's no end to it. It's just a, it's my journey. It's my life's journey. Not a day goes by that I don't think about it. And I took a break for a while because it got to be too much. I went back to teaching in the traditional classroom and, you know, that was fine until it wasn't. And, you know, my path has moved me back onto telling this story and in in from a different place, which has been very empowering. I call this next part and it wasn't until like a few years into the aftermath that I found this book written by, a, I believe he's a journalist named Lawrence Gonzalez. And he, the book is called Surviving Survival. He talks about how difficult the aftermath, the surviving, the survival actually is. And it was like, Oh my God, I felt so seen. I felt so understood. And I realized that I wasn't alone, that this is a thing when people experience a pretty significant trauma, trying to assimilate and get like reinvent yourself after something like that is its own trauma. And so it's been, it's been intense. It has not been easy. I have had to, you know, I lost my profession. I couldn't go back into the field and work. And, and my organization was like, well, if you can't go back into the field, then we can't employ you. <laughs> so it's like, okay. So I left, you know, I left Africa. I relocated to the U.S., which had never been really my plan. I've got this Swedish husband. Then I've got a baby. I got pregnant two weeks after the rescue, which we joke around that the book is called Impossible Odds, but that was the impossible odds. Now I've got this baby. I've got PTSD. I've got postpartum anxiety. Like it was like a whole thing. And it was really, really hard. And I think it wasn't until I really started talking openly about it that I found relief because, you know, when you keep things 
to yourself and you don't talk about them, that you feel more isolated and you feel more like a freak and you feel more alone. And um, two years ago, I started a podcast called We Should Talk About That with my co-host, who's another Jess. And we talk about all the things, but mental health is a huge part of what we talk about. And I have found that to be such a cathartic project and experience for me because I'm not alone. Maybe I'm like, I've met a few other people who've survived a kidnapping, but trauma is trauma and pain is pain is pain. Everybody is surviving something. And we'll have links to your podcast. Again, you mentioned it's the title of it is We Should Talk About That. Uh, we'll have links to that and also your book. When you were talking about finding it cathartic just to tell the story, I've had so many guests on this podcast tell me the mm-hmm. same thing. Just telling it verbally to some other person is therapeutic and cathartic and it's just such a such a big help. Did it help to write the book as well? Just to get it all out there? I think so. Yeah, I do. I mean, and we wrote it pretty soon after. Um, and we worked with a ghostwriter as well, Anthony Flacco. So I that was helpful while I wrote parts of it. I you know, I was like in the middle of having a baby and everything. I couldn't have written the whole thing by myself. But you wanted to do it while the while the details are still in your head too, right? Yes. Yeah. Because there's a lot of stuff I don't remember anymore. And, you know, the, we originally, we just wrote it because there are so many people to thank that there, that we could never possibly think in person. And we also wanted it for our son to, to have a, you know, have it written down before we forgot those details. Um, never like thought that it would lead to, uh, professional speaking career or that, you know, I would end up teaching professional speaking and like none of that. You're just like, you just want to get the details out and then be done with it. But it has then, as I would imagine a lot of your guests would say, it's a lot of work turning your pain into purpose, but it's also very, very rewarding and very healing. And this is my path. You know, this is my life's path. It's worth, worth the effort. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Your life today, you mentioned you do public speaking, so you're mm-hmm. available to, I mean, I'm just thinking if I, I, I don't work for a company, I'm self-employed, but if I worked for a company mm-hmm. and they had somebody come in and had you come in and, and tell your story, that would just be an amazing experience. Is that who you normally speak to or where do you usually go? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all kinds of, all kinds of companies, associations, a lot of times, well, you know, COVID has definitely put a, a dent in the uh, speaking opportunities, but a lot of, um, you know, organizations are, have conferences and they want somebody to, um, kick it off or close it off and inspire and motivate. And I did a TEDx talk, uh, last year, 2020, no, two years ago, gosh, 2020. And it's called changes your proof of life. And so, you know, a lot of what I talk about is how when things aren't changing, we're really not living. And so I talk about how change can actually be an opportunity for us to reinvent ourselves and to bring us to our life's purpose and, and all of the experiences that I've had. And um, so I do that. Um, I also teach professional speaking. So mainly work with women because I feel like a large part of my story is about the fact that I 
didn't exercise my voice, like I didn't stand up for myself. So I think it's really important for women to feel empowered, especially if they want to get up on the stage and get paid to speak. Um, There aren't enough women doing that. And so I have been in the industry for, I guess, nine years now. So I've teamed up with another um, survivor, a Boston Marathon bombing survivor, Rebecca Gregory. And we have a a collective, like a group coaching program for women. And then I also do one-on-one coaching for women who are wanting to tell their stories and uh, create a business and a brand out of uh, the hardship that they've experienced because you really can turn it into something um, that helps a lot of people and make a living doing it. And you've obviously done that. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, you've got your podcast, your public speaking, you wrote the book, which I read the book and it obviously in the book, you've got a chance to go into a lot more detail than what mm-hmm. we covered here in the in the podcast. So I would highly recommend that. I don't know, is there anything, any part of this that we haven't covered that you want to include? Um, yeah, I mean, I hang out on Instagram a lot, so or LinkedIn. So you can find me at Jessica C. Buchanan, and my website is uh, jessbuchanan.com. Uh, so, you know, I love interacting with people, happy to answer any questions, um, book clubs, the whole thing. So yeah, reach out. As I was putting together this episode, I reached out to President Obama for a comment. I really wanted to get his perspective on making that phone call to Jessica's father to finally let him know that she was safe and coming home. Wouldn't you have loved to be there and see his reaction to hear that news? I haven't heard back yet from the former president, but if I do, I'll include that in a future episode. If you liked this episode, there was a previous episode that you might also enjoy. This one also involved someone trying to rescue a family member, but not because of a kidnapping. Akami had to go on a rescue mission to get her husband because he had fallen into a volcano. And then I heard back like a really, really faint help. And then I called again after that because I wasn't sure if that was what I heard or not. Um, And then I heard it again. And then at that point in time, I just started, I turned around and I faced the mountain and I just started climbing down as quickly as I could. And I just started screaming his name because I was pretty certain by that point in time that he'd actually called out. And it was an extremely like desperate sounding, like weak sounding, like gasping for air help that I heard from him. That's episode 36 called Akami Rescued Her Husband. Great story. And if you haven't yet joined our Facebook listener group, what are you waiting for? We've got around 2,300 people there, and they all listen to this podcast just like you do. So we've got lots to talk about. And a lot of the previous guests on the podcast are in there too. And they can answer your questions you might have about their story. So we're all waiting for you to come over and join in the discussion. Just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash Facebook. And now we have this week's listener story. This one came from a friend of mine, Eric Gray. He's also a podcaster. And when you hear his voice, you'll probably think, okay, I'd like to hear more of that. His show is called Dumb People with Terrible Ideas. And if you like humor combined with sarcasm, you'll enjoy it. Today, Eric tells the story of the time his work got him an invitation to the White House. Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks.
I attended a Christmas party at the White House, so I received an invitation in the mail. There was calligraphy on the outside. Return address said 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and I immediately thought that someone was playing a prank. Inside was an invitation that directed me to call the social secretary, and I had to leave some personal information there for me and my guests so that they could vet us beforehand and make sure that we weren't a security risk. I told my girlfriend, you know, last month I brought you to Olive Garden. Next month I'm bringing you to the White House. At the East Wing entrance, it's a lot like the TSA checkpoint at an airport. There was, you know, tons of Secret Service agents. Some were in uniform, some were not. And there's a long list of things that you can't bring in. The people who had accidentally left a lighter or car keys or whatever in their pocket, they still allowed them in because we were reminded that we were guests. And that was pretty cool. Once inside, we walked up some stairs and then we were in the first floor of the White House. And immediately you start recognizing things that you've seen on TV, like the long hallway where I remember Reagan walking down to a podium to address the nation or the East Room where they've held concerts and press events and even had funerals there. We took a million pictures and it really didn't seem like there was much security. There was a guard or two that was stationed uh, at the staircase, which led up to the president's living quarters, the bedrooms and stuff. But Other than that, we kind of had run of the place, at least on that floor. Every president gets to decorate the White House as they choose. And at the time, the president had a dog named Bo. And so there were little uh, Portuguese water dog figurines of Bo everywhere. And there were pictures and stuffed doggies and stuff. And all that's mingled in with portraits of Abe Lincoln and John F. Kennedy on the walls. There were two buffets filled with shrimp and uh, finger sandwiches and champagne and stuff to munch on. And I learned later that these type parties are paid for by the president himself, not the government, because a Christmas party isn't considered official business. Our favorite room was the Red Room. It's a small parlor area that was painted in, in such a rich, deep maroon color. I Googled it later and found out that that was Nancy Reagan's favorite room, too. And that's also where my girlfriend spilled red wine on an antique couch. The president had an event in North Carolina that day, but halfway through the party, he landed on the South Lawn. And I was looking out the window as he left the helicopter, walked into the White House and gave us a short speech right there in the foyer right behind the front door that you see on TV, but you never see open. It was just really informal. It's his home, after all. The first lady said hello, told us to clean up before we left, which was a joke. I thought was kind of cute. The president mingled with us for a bit and then said, I got to get back to work. So we wound up staying for another hour or two. Just 200 folks, all meandering throughout the people's house, the White House, we felt like the luckiest people in the world for just a little bit. Shortly afterwards, I married my girlfriend. (laughs) I think the White House trip really sealed the deal.